Hello everyone. Before we start this episode, I need to offer you an apology. You probably think you're listening to part two of a two-part series on the Pike River mining disaster. But in reality, you're in fact listening to part two and what has turned into a three-part series on the Pike River disaster. Now, I know if you've been patiently waiting on the conclusion of this series, this is not the news you wanted to hear. But as we were writing part two, we found there was way too much material for just one episode. So we made the decision to split it in two. So I apologise for the need for this extra episode. But we needed this to do justice to what's a very complex story. The good news is that we do have a release date for part three. And that is the 1st of May. In the meantime, here is part two. From 1900 to just prior to the Pike River disaster, New Zealand had 15 mining tragedies. The worst was in 1914 when 43 people were killed in Ralph's Colliery in Huntley. And of these 15 tragedies, seven were caused by methane explosions. So methane explosions in coal mines are not a new risk. These types of incidents have caused more loss of life than anything else in coal mining. So the question really isn't why did Pike River Mine have a methane explosion? Instead, the question is, why did Pike River have a methane explosion when the risks of these sorts of incidents were so well known? This is the Brady Haywood Podcast, a show about failures and disasters. On the show, we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure and we explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. I'm your host, Sean Brady. In part one of our three-part series on Pike River, you heard what took place in the minutes, hours and days following the methane explosion at the mine. This episode, we'll take a step back and look at the history of the mine, and you'll hear how the factors that led to the explosion didn't suddenly present themselves on November 19, 2010. Instead, they'd been building and building over the months and years earlier. In this episode, we're going to step back a little and discuss what was happening in the mine in the years prior to the disaster. And to do this, we're going to go through some of the findings of the Royal Commission into the incident. Now, we won't be able to go through everything. And the reason we can't go through everything is there's simply too much to cover. So much went wrong at this mine. So if you do want a full discussion of the tragedy, I've placed a link to the Royal Commission report in the show notes. So in part one, you heard how the story began with Daniel Duggan in the control room at Pike River. He'd just restarted the pump system to the mine, and he was contacting the men underground to let them know that mining could be resumed. Then he'd lost all comms with the mine, and alarms started to go off in the control room. You then heard how Matthias Stridham drove into the mine to investigate what went wrong, and how he had to retreat because of the toxic environment. And you also heard how Daniel Rockhouse had rescued himself from the mine, and while doing so, how he saved the life of Russell Smith. So how did all this happen? And were there warnings beforehand to suggest that something was wrong? Let's start way back in September 2006, when construction began on the mine's 23 kilometer long underground roadway called 
the drift. This is the roadway that miners used to enter the mine, and it's the very same drift that Daniel Rockhouse and Russell Smith walked out along when they escaped the mine. And it was during construction of this drift that work crews encountered significant amounts of methane. And this led to the Department of Labour labelling Pike River a gassy mine. What does the term gassy mine actually mean? Well, if you're familiar with coal mining, you'll know all about methane gas and why it's dangerous. But if you're not familiar with it, let's step through why methane management is so important. Methane gas occurs naturally in coal mines. It forms in coal seams along with other gases and mining activity essentially cutting away the coal, disturbs and releases it. Now there are lots of factors that dictate how quickly this gas is released, such as the initial concentration of the gas in the coal, the geometry of the mine workings and the rate of coal production. Now, the initial concentration of gas is really important and it would turn out that this concentration was high in Pike River. So why is methane so bad in mines? Well, the issue is that if you get enough methane in the air, you can get an explosion. Typically, once you get a mixture of between 5 and 15% methane to air by volume, it's flammable. Then all you need is an ignition source and you can get an explosion. And by ignition sources, we mean sparks from mining equipment, diesel engines overheating, or miners bringing contraband underground, like cigarettes or matches. Even the battery in a wristwatch has enough power to ignite methane. So that's the hazard. How do you manage it? Well, here are some examples of what you can do. Firstly, you can remove some of the gas from the coal before you actually mine it. This process is called gas drainage. That way, when you're mining the coal, the amount of gas remaining in the coal is significantly reduced, which means the amount of gas you release while mining it is also significantly reduced. Secondly, you can ensure that when the gas is released, you have enough air ventilation to dilute the percentage of gas in the air so that it stays below the explosive range. Thirdly, you can ensure there are no ignition sources to ignite any potential gas. And you can do this by making sure you separate any potential ignition sources from where you believe you'll have gas. Now, in terms of ignition sources, you also need to consider the risk of spontaneous combustion of the coal itself. So coal can ignite spontaneously when exposed to oxygen. You need to reduce the potential for this in areas where gas is present. And finally, you can make sure that you continuously monitor the percentage of methane in the mine to make sure you're managing all of this safely. And related to this is the need to have methane sensors installed on equipment and vehicles, which automatically shuts down this equipment when methane levels reach a level that's approaching the explosive range. This minimizes the risk of the equipment providing an ignition source. And the reality is you do a combination of all these things, and this is just good industry practice. Now we're going to talk in a moment about how Pike River implemented these sorts of controls. But before we do, let's talk about how they actually planned to mine the coal. They planned to use a process called hydromining. Now we don't need to get into much detail about how this process works, but it involves equipment that uses high-pressure water to blast off the coal. As the coal is removed, the mined area is allowed to collapse on itself. This collapsed area is called the gulf. This type of mining is challenging. 
you can release large amounts of methane gas as you mine, and you can also build up lots of gas in the collapsed gulf area. And on top of this, the gulf can experience a sudden roof collapse, which can then flush gas out of the gulf area and into the work area. This brings with it the risk of increased concentrations and potential explosions. So here you are in a gassy mine, and you're using a mining method that can release large amounts of methane. So how did Pike River Planted deal with this methane? Let's split this discussion into gas drainage, mine ventilation, and gas monitoring. So let's begin with gas drainage. Pike River needed to make sure they could actually mine the coal without releasing too much methane in the process. Gas drainage removes the methane before you mine it. This is usually done by drilling boreholes into the coal seam, which are then connected to a pipeline system that removes the gas from the mine. So the objective here is to remove enough gas from the coal so that when you're mining, the remaining gas you're releasing can be dealt with by the ventilation system. And when you're designing these gas drainage systems, you need to go through a few key steps. You need to collect core samples of the coal before you mine it to estimate the quantity of gas in the coal. This tells you how many boreholes you'll need to actually remove the gas. Then you drill the holes, connect them up to the pipeline, and monitor everything to make sure you're removing the gas effectively. Then, prior to mining, you take further core samples to make sure the gas content in the coal has reduced to a level that allows mining to continue safely. Now let's look at what happened at Pike River. Way back in 2006, they did know that mining would not have been possible by ventilation alone. They knew pre-drainage would be required. But by as late as mid-2010, Pike River had very limited knowledge of the level of the gas in the coal they planned to mine. And the reason why was that they had taken very few core samples. Without this data, they were unable to properly design a gas drainage system. And as well as this lack of data, it would turn out that any methane drainage that was actually undertaken was more incidental rather than systematic. Boreholes were drilled for seam exploration purposes, but not for the purposes of gas drainage. And very limited gas flow information was determined from these boreholes. So some of these boreholes were connected up, but the system soon became overwhelmed by the level of gas they were expected to extract. For example, on eight occasions in March 2010, there were reports from Pike River deputies noting their concerns with issues in the system. Some were of the view that the gas drainage system was clearly inadequate for the methane levels predicted and experienced. One person said in an email discussing their concerns about the system that history has shown us in the mining industry that methane, when given the right environment, will show us no mercy. He goes on to say they need to take gas drainage far more seriously and redesign the entire system. But by April 2010, this drainage system was already operating at full capacity. Now let's look at ventilation. Its primary role is to ensure that the concentration of methane in the mine is kept at an acceptable level. In other words, you need enough air flowing into and out of the mine to ensure you dilute any methane you're accumulating. So a key aspect of a ventilation system is that you have a ventilation loop. At Pike River, the ventilation loop was for air to be drawn in through the drift. Then it flowed past the work areas where the mining took place, and then it flowed to the main ventilation shaft of the mine, and it exited up this shaft. Now the question is, did Pike River have enough air circulating through the mine? 
Well, in the months leading up to the explosion, the view was that the ventilation system was running right on capacity with very little margin for error. And because there was only one ventilation loop, if anything happened to compromise it, there could be very serious consequences. Now, a second intake was planned, but it didn't happen before the explosion. Then there was the ventilation system's main fan, the fan that drew air around the ventilation loop. It was located in a very unusual place. It was located underground, at the base of the ventilation shaft, inside the mine. There was also a secondary fan located at the top of the shaft. Now, locating this main fan inside the mine was unusual, and the Royal Commission into the disaster found no evidence that any other coal mine in the world had their main fan underground. But Pike River put their fan underground for a number of reasons. One was that the above-ground access to the shaft was only possible by foot or by helicopter because of the rugged terrain. Another reason was that the fan needed power, and they didn't want to have to run power up the mountainside. Instead, because they already had power inside the mine, they located the fan down there too. But there are very good reasons why this is not a good idea. The first is, if there's an explosion in the mine, you can damage the fan, which makes it very hard to re-establish ventilation afterwards. If you can't get the mine ventilated after an explosion, this can significantly affect the survival chances of anyone that survived the initial blast. Secondly, because the fan is underground, it can potentially be exposed to methane, and the fan itself can be an ignition source. All of this can be avoided if you put the fan above ground. Now, there was a risk assessment carried out on putting this fan underground, and controls were identified to avoid what we've just talked about. For example, there was a plan to install protection around the fan to prevent damage in the event of an explosion. And I'll emphasise the line, there was a plan to install protection. But the biggest issue with the system was that this underground fan was not actually due to come online by the time hydro mining would start in September 2010. The underground fan would come online on the 22nd of October, and up until then, the much smaller fan on the surface was going to be the only fan ventilating the mine. And this secondary fan was already running at capacity long before hydro mining began. Which brings us to the final piece of the puzzle, the gas monitoring. All underground coal mines require some form of monitoring to ensure that methane and other gas levels are at an acceptable level. There's remote gas monitoring systems, machine-mounted sensors, and there are handheld sensors that miners can carry as well. Remote gas monitoring, as the name suggests, is a method to monitor different parts of the mine without someone needing to be there. This can be done with sensors, which send a signal to the surface in real time. Or they can be in the form of what's known as a tube bundle system. So what's a tube bundle system? Well, it's a system of plastic tubes that run from the surface down into the mine. Air is then drawn up through these tubes by a vacuum pump located on the surface and this air is sampled and analysed. You can then determine the levels of methane and oxygen as well as other gases at different locations in the mine. And one of the good things about this tube bundle system is that you don't need power underground to make it work. You just need the vacuum pump on the surface, which shouldn't be affected in the event of an explosion. 
And when it comes to remote monitoring, by way of comparison, industry practice in Australia is to use both real-time sensors and a tube bundle system. And a number of ventilation plans for Pike River propose the installation of both these systems too. So what actually happened? Well, Pike River did install real-time gas monitoring sensors, but they didn't install a tube bundle system. The plan for the real-time monitoring system was for eight standalone sensors to be electronically connected to the control room. Once these sensors started providing real-time gas data, alarm levels would be set and trigger action response plans, or TARPs, could be formulated. And these TARPs set out how Pike River would respond to various gas alarms. So this was the overarching monitoring system. In addition to this, there was also vehicle-mounted sensors and handheld sensors. Now, an important thing about these methane sensors is that they're only capable of recording methane levels up to 5%. If they're exposed to methane above this level, then they become what's called poisoned, and they can no longer provide reliable data. This upper limit also means that methane levels in excess of 5% will only read a maximum of 5%. But this is what the system looked like on paper, and in a few minutes you'll hear how it actually worked in real life. So let's recap. Here you have a mine with very little knowledge of the actual levels of methane in the coal because you haven't taken many cores to estimate it. And you also know that your existing gas drainage system is at capacity. Then you're going to use a mining method, hydromining, that has a potential to release significant levels of gas. And the ventilation system you've put in place has no margin for error, and the main fan that's critical won't actually come online until after the hydromining has already commenced. And on top of all this, the one system that'll tell you whether or not you have a risk, your gas monitoring system, as you'll soon hear, has some serious vulnerabilities. And so it's against this backdrop that we can start to look at the ever-cascading array of warning signs that piled one on top of the other to tell the story of a mine that never actually had control of its methane problem to begin with. But it wasn't as if no one knew about the problems there was with methane control. There were many voices raising concerns from both inside and outside the company. And with hydromining due to begin in September 2010, these concerns were becoming louder and more numerous. And they weren't only about methane management, they were also about the culture at the mine. Miles Brown, a mining engineer engaged to consult on the drainage system, was concerned enough about this system that he wanted work stopped until a risk assessment for continuation occurred. The gas drainage system was at maximum capacity by April 2010. Maintaining it had also become an issue. Pipelines were blocked. There was no method to measure gas flows, and there was still no data available to design an effective system. Brown emphasised that core drilling to determine the levels of methane in the coal was the single most important task that the mine could undertake. Some more cores were taken, but the results were only just released before the explosion. By this stage, several inseam boreholes were free-venting methane into the mine's atmosphere. And in October, McConnell Dowell, a contractor on site, found a whistling standpipe and gas being emitted. This wasn't addressed by the time of the explosion. 
And there were plenty of concerns about the ventilation too. By July 2010, Japanese hydro mining consultant Masaoki Nishioka, who was on site assisting with getting production up and running, found that nobody seemed to be taking care of ventilation in the mine. While the ventilation plan at the mine called for a dedicated ventilation officer, there was none. On top of this, there were problems with the ventilation control devices. These were structures that blocked off areas of the mine to ensure that air flowed around the ventilation loop. They were found to be too flimsy and too easy to knock down. On top of this, there was significant leakage and air contamination through these devices. On September 20, Nishioka noted repeated problems with methane levels in the hydro panel where mining was taking place. This showed that the ventilation system was struggling. But this formally didn't come to light because there was no process to audit the system's compliance. Nor were there external audits either. On top of this, the main fan wasn't running and people were raising concerns that the secondary fan on the surface was proving inadequate. By October 2010, reports were showing daily methane exceedances in the mine. There was also concerns about the integrity of the main fan's placement underground. Despite plans for the fan to be protected in the event of an explosion, this protection hadn't been installed. If there was an explosion now, it could knock out the fan and jeopardise any survivors from the blast. And then there was the culture underground that now had a firm focus on production that was being driven by the executive management team. And this was despite health and safety systems being inadequate. Worker training for new staff, as well as continuous training for existing staff, was falling behind. This was partly due to an increase in the workforce, as well as miners being unable to get training time because of production targets. By now, on occasion, there were contractors who had not undertaken any inductions entering the mine. Add to this that a large percentage of workers were clean skins. They'd never worked underground before. One miner describes telling a gung-ho younger miner, I've been in this game all my life and I'm not going to die here just because you don't understand where you are working. He quit the project before the explosion. Combine these concerns with the high turnover in key staff. From November 2008 to the time of the explosion, over just two years, Pike had two technical services managers, three engineering managers, and six mine managers. Getting continuity was almost impossible. Then there was the gas sensors in the mine. In terms of remote real-time sensors, you've heard that eight were installed. Three of these were located in the mine's return, where the contaminated air flowed from the work faces out to the ventilation shaft. This was where you were likely to get methane concentrations because of mining activity. One of these three sensors at the foot of the ventilation shaft stopped working on the 4th of September 2010. Then, just over a month later, and almost a month before the explosion, a second sensor, located where the hydro mining was taking place, stopped working too. Neither were fixed or replaced. This meant there was only one sensor connected to the control room between the coal face and the ventilation shaft. 
Now, there was one additional sensor in the Hydra mining area, but it was not connected to the control room. Instead, it was mounted on a piece of equipment. But because it didn't report to the surface, it provided no permanent record of gas levels. There was also one additional sensor at the top of the ventilation shaft, but it wasn't calibrated properly, and it underestimated the percentage of methane. An explosive level of 5% would read as 2.96%, and it was also unreliable and it had been poisoned by methane on a number of occasions. Nothing was done about it either. But even if this data was flowing into the control room, there were massive issues there too. Controllers were not trained adequately. And there was no process in the control room to manage the gas alarms. The TARP system that was meant to be used to manage the response to alarms was completely confusing and not in use. By this point, based on readings from the shaft, explosive levels of gas would have been in the mine on a number of occasions. Underground, mining machines were regularly tripping because of the high gas levels. And some teams actually started bypassing the sensors by fixing plastic bags around them in order to keep on producing. New Zealand's worst mining disaster in the last hundred years now seemed almost inevitable. And in part three, we step through what happened on the day of the explosion, November 19, 2010. You've been listening to the Brady Haywood Podcast, where we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure and explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. Join me on the first of each month for our next episode. So you don't miss out, you can subscribe to the show on your podcast app now. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood, a firm that specializes in forensic engineering and the investigation of incidents, defects, and failures in the mining and construction sectors. If you'd like to speak to us, you can find more information on our website, bradyhaywood.com.au. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Thanks for listening.